listening to the First Draft Podcast, a podcast that provides honest and constructive feedback to new writers. I'm Julie Farkas. And I'm Crystal Lay. We are ready to get started here. So our inspirational quote for today comes from Allen Ginsberg. He's a poet. And he wrote, to gain your own voice, you have to forget about having it heard. Okay, I have to think about that one. Read it again. Okay, I'll read it one more time. To gain your own voice, you have to forget about having it heard. Oh, I got it. You got it this time, right? So he's saying that you have to write without hesitation, without holding back, assuming nobody's ever going to read it. And that's how you find your truest voice. Frank X. Walker has the best poem about his mother throwing a book of his poems at him because she knew it was about the family and she didn't (laughs) like what he had said. (laughs) And I just love that poem. That is important. Absolutely. You have to just write whatever it is that's inside of you, and then hopefully you can get it out there at some point. But some people never do. Some people don't publish what they have. They don't let anybody see it, but they find peace. They find their voice just in putting it on paper, and that's okay, too. We are ready to get started here. This piece was submitted by Mia and is Chapter 7 from her memoir, Up to Us. The title of the chapter is My Hair Story. But the chapter can also be used in the genre of creative nonfiction, 10,050 words or less. This type of nonfiction is suitable for a literary journal, a contest, or a magazine article. Are you ready? Turning from one angle to the next, I slap on coats of wax designed to smooth over and silence the new growth that is inserting itself like rebellious blockbusters around my edges. My irritated scalp refuses to be bought off with ointments, oils, or topical medications, and I am now being forced to live with these newcomers that I do not know how to accept, love, or embrace. Adding just one more layer of product is the only way I'm able to look in the mirror. My natural hair has never been allowed to exist in peace for very long before being attacked with heat or bombarded with chemicals that assures me my strands will behave and remain straight. I alternate burning it with various heated appliances and concoctions because I am desperate and in denial, and I want to believe the ads that repeatedly promise me Instagram filter beauty, if only I refocus on their pictures and what others think and don't look in the mirror. Like an abusive spouse, surveying damage, wiping tears, and then softly whispering never to ever again, I blame the victim. If you weren't so wild and radical, I wouldn't have to do this. So the war, of course, is necessary, and I return to absently picking and pulling at crusty scabs, watching desiccated pieces of me auger to the floor. That is not me. That could not possibly be me, and I'm too disgusted to look in the mirror. My roots are as tangled and twisted as the moss that hangs from cypress trees in the bayous of Louisiana. It is almost impossible to understand their origin, Yet the blood of my ancestors serves as our genesis, anchoring and feeding us, but it is hard, so hard sometimes, to see them as beautiful and glorious and free when you are either standing in the middle of black water or white rapids. It is so difficult and so painful to carefully create parts, examine what's really there, and look in the mirror. My extremely thick mane bewilders my mother, who rocks good hair. In my eyes, I stand out as the ugly duckling with absolutely no hope of ever becoming a beautiful swan if my hair is left unaided by heat and chemical relaxers. Why must I even look in the mirror? My parents come from a time and place where white men, fueled by liquid courage, cowardice in numbers, and half-ass invisibility cloaks, could and would randomly adorn a tree with a brown life where no one wants to look in the mirror. I will never have the coveted Indian hair my siblings and parents enjoy. Nope, only wild kinks and naps for me. 
and this shit needs taming, so I have to look in the mirror. My parents come from a time and place where my father, the most kind and gracious of men, very quietly and just once tells me, you will never know what it is like to have to look down and step off the curb for a white woman. How does he look in the mirror? My mother never directly refers to my hair as shit, but I can read between shampoos. She regales her friends with a story of how she had to place me in the kitchen sink at six months old and use a pressing comb to fix my bad hair. So she looks like she belongs in this family. I hate to look in the mirror. My parents come from a time and place neither ever mentions being called uppity niggers, simply for daring to achieve a college education and wanting to improve conditions for other people of color. Yet this is documented in the New Iberia incident, where a white man, the sheriff by day and a ghost by night, is so afraid of change that he and his henchmen use a ruse to collect my father and four other priceless topaz gems. Each helpless wife stands praying silently in the gap, bouncing anxious babies on rounded hips as these little ones know, and watch and wait, with reaching arms and pleading cries. The air weighs heavily with the stench of combined fear, and mothers instantly place cupped hands over their tiny mouths, shushing them behind closed doorways and curtained windows while they pace and hope their jewels will return to them whole and unfractured. They are too afraid to look in the mirror. I graduate from my place in the sink to a delicately balanced and slippery perch of stacked yellow and white pages piled high atop what my mom simply refers to as the chair. This naugahyde beast is dragged from our breakfast table to the kitchen near the stove, and I learn to climb up and balance as well as any tightrope walker would. Keeping my butt still, I see loose hairs, once whole and long, flowing through the air as captured prisoners of the comb. I hypnotically watch them surrender, curl, and disintegrate into charred crumbs at the base of the burner. The hot comb promises to make me acceptable without fist or boot or club or noose, and usually leaves no visible scars as it returns to the flame for just one more pass through this section. The occasional bump burn simply teaches me not to flinch. If I just quit moving and keep still, when I'm all done, I'll be able to look in the mirror. My parents come from a time and place where my father is taken to a sugarcane field in the middle of the night. Badly beaten, spat upon, left alone, concussed, he is told he is lucky and reminded that if he is seen in town the next morning, they will indeed finish the job. He must immediately leave all that he loves behind. What do my parents and relatives see that night when my father, the most kind and gracious man I know, makes his way home through the gap and they all must look in the mirror? I am certain of nothing except that my scalp is alive with pain. Invisible hands force me to see that I can no longer hide or blend into 400 years of obfuscated history and dare me to look in the mirror. I absolutely love this piece because you can feel the pain through hair. This is my favorite line. Like an abusive spouse surveying damage, wiping tears, and then softly whispering, never to ever again, I blame the victim. I think that is the best line ever about shame women feel about their bodies about their hair, about their sex lives, about everything. Mm -hmm. What did you think? You know, I couldn't agree more. And to me, the hair really takes on another character. It's almost like that's the main character in this. It's not the narrator. And I love how this author doesn't directly says this is a race issue, saying that my mother never directly refers to my hair as shit, but I can read between shampoos. And I love 
being in the middle of black water or white rapids. Like, how visual is that? I liked it better and free when you are standing in the middle of black water and white rapids. Mm -hmm. It is so difficult to look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. because that visual is so powerful that I don't think the other, the other uh, sentence. sentences needed. Yeah. And there were a couple of places like that. One was just the word choices. In the very beginning, the Harris called blockbusters around my edges, and the word blockbuster didn't work for me because I yeah. usually think of that as movies, and I wish there were another word. Another one was watching desiccated pieces of meat auger onto the floor. The word auger there Mm -hmm. to me wasn't a good choice. Another paragraph down from there, yet the blood of my ancestor serves as our genesis. And it's not our genesis, it's her genesis. She's Mm -hmm. the one with the bad hair. And I thought another word would be more appropriate, another approach to that. Mm -hmm. And one other thing, again, was the sequencing. And this is something the author needs to decide whether to sprinkle the paragraphs about my mother and father came from a time throughout the story or have them all at the end. I was conflicted about that. What did you think? I agree. So there were two lines that reappear throughout it, the look in the mirror and then the time that her parents came from. And I felt the same way, that they either needed to be spread more evenly throughout the piece so that they were very consistent and rhythmic or to be clustered towards the end to make it work better. Here's an interesting question. How old do you think the narrator is supposed to be? I'm thinking she's a teenager or in her 20s. So I was thinking that she was teens until we got to the end and she starts talking about sitting up on this big tall stack of phone books, which is an interesting picture, but to me that sounds much younger. And I don't know how important it is that we have a good sense of how old this person is because she's not the main character. We've right. established the hair is. And I think it's okay that it spans a lot of time, but it did make me wonder how old we were seeing this. So as the author goes through and works on this a little bit, to keep that in mind, are the descriptions appropriate for someone the age that they're thinking this narrator is? Well, one thing that might correct that if that is the first memory. Mm, yeah, if so, it put a, so change the order. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that way you see the person grow older as the piece goes on. No, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah I think that, that would be. really work. All right, let's see what Mia thinks about our review. Okay, Mia, we finished our review. What do you think about it? Well, thank you so much for reading my piece. I just love the comments about rethinking of the little girl and moving her to the beginning because that was awkward with the telephone book, but that was such a real image. And so I love the suggestion about moving child up to the beginning of the piece and helping her progress and then considering should I group my parents in one chunk or continue to sprinkle them throughout the piece. It's kind of had this evolutionary effect that started off being angry, but then I got like, no, she was so worried about my hair having to be straight that because of their experience, because I would be more acceptable with straight hair. And, And then, okay, I really like 
the part where you pointed out about the abuse of a spouse, I wasn't sure if that fit, and I'm glad that you both liked the imagery there. That imagery works. It worked for both of us. And then Julie had a question about the blockbuster part, and so blockbusters were the first African-American people to move into a neighborhood, but oh. concept Didn't know that. was totally different and the movie theater. And so it reminded me to be aware of audience and understand that this is across cultures and generations of people and they might not know that. Mia, I have a little question for you. So it says, where white men fueled by liquid courage, cowardice in numbers. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what this cowardice in numbers mean. Are you just... One by one, it, it wouldn't have worked because there's a group, then there's a mob mentality. I gotcha. And they have power and it works. It's only cowardice works in numbers. They could have... Oh, right. I, okay. I love that. Yes, I like yeah. that. That's yes. Good. Yeah. Do you have any questions now that we've reviewed it? Um, no, I, I love what you have told me and shared with me and your critique to help me make this a much stronger piece for well, this great opportunity. When we read it, we knew it was special. Mm-hmm. Very much enjoyed it. And I know yeah. Julie did because she sent me like five exclamation points in the email. She's like, oh, my gosh, I love this one. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we must have it. So, no, it was it's very powerful. It really shows how much power there is in written word. I think that's a really good thing for us to see here. Thanks for submitting it. We really appreciate mm-hmm. it and uh, hope you keep writing. Thanks so much for picking my piece. Okay. Thank you so much Thanks for sending again. it in. Bye. Okay, now we're ready for our next piece. Seth Gannon sent us a chapter from a work in progress titled Revealed Lives. This chapter is past the introductory segment, so the reader should already have some of the backstory about the characters, such as it is about a couple that is immigrated from Germany to farm in the upper Midwest of what is now the United States of America. They want to assimilate as an English-speaking family as quickly as possible. They have a young son and daughter, and the son, while appearing to be a normal little boy, has the power to divine both the past and the future. This is from Raveled Lives by Seth Gannon. St. Paul's Roman Catholic Church, Burlington, New Jersey, May 13, 1928. The Beckenbauers sat high up in the balcony that Sunday at Huggins' request because he loved to sit near the organ. He paid more attention to the organist than the priest anyway. His English wasn't as good as his German, and he loved watching the organist's fingers move over the keys and his feet dance on the pedals. He would sit when his parents sat, kneel when they knelt, stand when they stood. At four, he was old enough to quietly stay behind in the balcony while his parents made their way to the altar, George holding little Mathilde, to get the cracker the priest put in their mouths. It took a little longer this time to get into line because they had to go down a flight of stairs with the rest of the people from the balcony. This gave Hagen more time to observe the people down below. With the balcony now vacant, just the organist and him, he went up to the front and looked over the entire nave to watch the parishioners as they stood in line to get their cracker. From high on his perch, he scanned the pews and the people in line. His attention was soon drawn to a man and his wife 
sitting next to each other just below him in the last pew in the back of the church. The man was leaning in close to the woman, saying something softly to her. She was dressed all in black and was wearing a black hat with a mesh veil. Her bowed head gently shook back and forth. The man put his hand on his shoulder, then got up and made his way through the pew and stood in the cracker line. The lady in black pulled the kneeler down on its hinge and knelt, clasping her hands in front of her in prayer, her black rosary dangling from her fingers, neck arched up to look at Jesus on the cross overseeing the cracker ceremony. Hagen couldn't take his eyes off her and hadn't noticed that his parents had received their crackers and were turning up the side aisle. Marta looked up and saw her son standing at the edge of the balcony, hands on the ledge looking down. She followed his gaze to the lady in black, sitting in prayer alone in the last pew. Marta saw the veil of mourning covering her face and said a little prayer. She said amen and looked back up at the balcony to find her son was now watching her. He stared down into his mother's eyes, his expression like the statue of Christ looking down on the candle lighters with sympathetic eyes and a compassionate smile. Goosebumps spread from Marta's nose to her toes. She looked back over at the woman whose husband had returned. She was sitting back in the pew next to him. When Marta looked up at the balcony, her son was gone. Hagen's parents returned to the balcony to find their son where they had left him, in his seat watching the organist. Marta sat down and gazed upon her Hagen, sitting there so beautiful, a mini version of her handsome husband, her angel. She leaned over and kissed the top of his head. He turned and looked up at her and gave her a smile and said, Ich liebe dich, Mama. If she could have loved him any more than she already did, it was at that moment. And she didn't have the heart to tell him to say it in English, and instead responded, Ich liebe dich auch, mein Liebling. Mass ended and Father Kelly exited towards the front doors of the church as his parishioners followed behind. The Beckenbauers left the balcony and made their way down the stairs and into the rivulet of people trickling to the exit where Father Kelly stood on the porch chatting with the parishioners as they left. Outside the sun shone warm in the bright blue sky as sparse cottony puffs of clouds floated high overhead, tickling the belly of heaven. A dogwood tree in the corner by the sidewalk was in full, glorious bloom. Two enormous full stands of forsythias, blazing in all their golden yellow splendor, stood like sentries at each side of the gate. So much color on this beautiful day, so peaceful and inviting that the parishioners lingered longer than usual as they discussed their plans for the rest of the weekend. There was talk of driving to the shore and picnics with relatives in nearby towns. George discussed fruit trees with another farmer from out in Florence. Meanwhile, Marta kept an eye on Mathilde as she toddled in the grass with some of the other children while she chatted with a woman who held her own baby girl. Hagen, well, he was aware of the trees and the flowers and the people and the little ones playing on the lawn, but that was all background noise. In the foreground of his thoughts was the lady in black, who now stood with her husband, his arm around her waist, on the stoop near the big gothic arched wooden doors talking to Father Kelly. The priest looked very serious and sympathetic, no smile, head tilting as he spoke. The lady's hat moved up and down ever so minimally, nodding in acknowledgment to the serious priest's words. The husband nodded, occasionally looking at his wife, then back to Father Kelly. 
the priest took the lady's right hand in both of his and held it as he spoke, smiling compassionately like Hagen from the balcony. Then he took hold of the husband's right hand in both of his, shaking it, saying something again with a compassionate smile. He blessed them with the sign of the cross. Then the lady in black and her husband walked down the granite steps and met with some of the other parishioners. The husband began talking to an older gentleman with a great mustache and wide-rimmed round glasses. They shook hands, and the elder man greeted the lady in black. She said something to her husband. He smiled and nodded. Hagen could read the okay on his lips. She left the two men to talk and sat by herself on a wrought iron bench under a magnificently blooming magnolia tree, looking out into the lawn that separated the rectory from the church. So still, one had mistaken her for a statue. Hagen feigned interest in the Forsythias, tried to blend in with them, while he watched the lady walk to the bench and sit. He looked over at her husband, whose eyes followed his wife, and the mustachioed man who was watching the husband with concern on his face. The husband sighed. The mustachioed man put a hand on his shoulder consolingly. The husband, now on the verge of tears, took a deep breath and squeezed his eyes closed tightly and shook his head as he exhaled. Hagen turned his attention again to the lady in black and walked over to the magnolia tree, climbed onto the bench, and sat to her left and looked straight ahead. They were now two statues both staring off into the nothing. The lady in black had been so deep in her thoughts that a few moments passed before she realized that a little boy was sharing the bench with her. She looked down at Hagen and could see that there were tears running down her cheeks. Her concern diverted her mind for a moment. Little boy, what is the matter? She looked around for any sign of distressed parents looking for their child. Are you lost? Hagen didn't answer her. He turned his head toward her and looked up through the mesh veil into her eyes. Hagen's stunningly blue eyes, like little pieces of sky, had a look of depth, age, understanding that you would not expect in one so young, and the lady in black caught her breath. Hagen looked forward again into the nothing without speaking and slid very close, resting his head against her arm. The lady in black was baffled, her concern increasing. Little boy, what is the matter? Where are your mommy and daddy? Hagen took a breath deep and slow, then let out a sigh. He sat up straight, slid off the bench, and stood directly in front of her, very close, so close that he could reach up and put a hand on each side of her face. He pulled her closer to him, lifted her veil, and kissed her gently on the forehead. As he let her face go, she sat back, mesmerized by those blue eyes and angelic smile, and a viceroy butterfly landed on its head and sat there, slowly waving its wings up and down, up and down. Hagen stood very still, seemingly unaware of the butterfly on its head, looking deeply into the lady's eyes as she stared in amazement at the appearance of this creature on this little boy's head. George and Marta were looking around for their children. They found Mathilde sitting in the grass plucking clover flowers. Marta picked her up and the two parents searched for their son. George spied Hagen and the lady in black and pointed, Look, over there under the magnolia tree. As they approached their son and the lady in black, Marta saw the butterfly on Hagen's head and she stopped wide-eyed. George, do you see that? They watched Hagen and the lady and the butterfly, speechless and frozen to the spot where they stood. With a click flap of its wings, the butterfly took flight. It flew around the lady and landed on her left wrist. She held up her arm. The butterfly didn't startle at her movement, but instead did something very odd. 
It walked from her wrist to her ring finger and stopped on her wedding band. It did some more slow flapping, then turned in place three times on her ring. One, two, three, then stopped, facing her, seeming to look right into her eyes. It raised its wings high, bringing them together, holding them there like hands in prayer. Then with another quick wing flap, it flew off. The Lady George and Marta watched the butterfly as it flew right over the lady's husband's head as he walked across the lawn in direction of the magnolia tree, then disappeared into the blue heavens. The lady stood as her husband approached and turned to him, and she smiled. He could see that she had been crying, and he put his hands on her arms, his face quizzical. Are you all right, Abigail? She blinked. A tear fell from each eye and trickled down her cheeks. Yes, Stephen, I'm all right. Quite all right, actually. He took his handkerchief out of his pocket and caught her tears before they could fall from her chin. Forgive me, but I haven't seen you smile since. And he looked down as if afraid to say more and cry again himself. She lifted his chin up to look into his cry-reddened eyes. I know, dear. I haven't been able to. I'm so sorry for making you suffer my disposition along with everything else. There's nothing to be sorry for, darling. His eyes glistened with new tears on the rise. The lady unpinned the mesh veil from her hat and tucked it into her pocketbook. She kissed her husband on each cheek, wiped away the tears with her fingers, and turned to look down at Hagen, who had now been joined by the rest of his family. I'm sorry if my son was bothering you, said Marta. Hagen, why are you bothering this nice lady? Oh, he wasn't bothering me, said the lady in black. He sat with me while my husband chatted with his boss. Are you sure, asked George. Absolutely, looking down on Hagen. Hagen, that is your name. Hagen nodded. It was so very nice to meet you, Hagen. Thank you for, what could she really say? Keeping me company. He wrapped his arms around her legs and squeezed. The lady in black put one hand on his head caressing his hair, the other hand to her mouth as fresh tears fell from her eyes. He released his grip, stepped back, looked up into her eyes and smiled a different smile, not compassionate but content. He looked up at his parents, who had no idea what to make of everything, and their faces showed it. George took Mathilde from his wife, Marta, still looking at his son. I want to get home and check the orchards before lunch. Marta nodded, looking down at her son. Huh. Oh, yes, orchards, lunch. George turned back to the lady in black and her husband, who were now in a tight embrace, her back to the Beckenbauers. As he was about to say goodbye, the lady in black's husband opened his crying eyes, looked at George and his family, lifted his face from his wife's shoulder and mouthed, Thank you. The Beckenbauers walked back to the Sterling in silence. When they were all seated in the cab of the truck, Marta asked her son, what was that all about with that lady? Hagen looked up into her eyes and simply said, Mama, I know, in English. The lady was very sad. Marta and George were dumbfounded by their profound four-year-old little man. Why is she sad? asked his father. I do not know, Papa. I know she was sad. George and Marta looked over at each other with questioning faces and shrugged. Another thing that Hagen didn't know was that his parents knew why the lady in black and her husband were sad. They knew the whole congregation knew that Stephen and Abigail Gilchrist had lost their little Elizabeth, five and a half year old, to influenza three months before. Their father was, of course, devastated, still grieving intensely, but mostly on the inside. He cries when he is alone, for his wife's sake, because she was losing her battle with depression. The loss of their only child was too much for her to bear. 
She had stood by helplessly, watching her little girl take her last breath and slip away to heaven. Her faith in God, her religion, herself as a mother flew away in her daughter's spirit. Another thing that nobody else knew, not even the lady in black's husband, was that she was planning to get up in the middle of the night that very night when her husband was fast asleep, sneak downstairs to her husband's office and take his World War I revolver from his desk drawer, walk far out to the edge of their property and put the barrel in her mouth to end the pain. What happened that warm spring Sunday under the magnolia tree was the miracle she needed to restore her faith in God and in life. You see, when Hagen saw the lady in black sitting all by herself, kneeling in prayer while her husband was getting his cracker, she was praying to God to forgive her for the sin she was planning to commit that evening. If burning in hell for all eternity was to be her punishment, then so be it. Nothing could compare with the living hell she existed in since she lost her baby girl. God's response was Hagen. When Hagen gazed up into her eyes, a sense of peace had come over her. The pain of loss was there. It would be forever present, but not despairingly. Her little girl Elizabeth had loved butterflies, and her favorite was the brightly colored viceroy. And when one landed on Hagen's head, it was to Abigail, a sign from God and Elizabeth. When the butterfly landed on her head and twirled on her wedding band, it was God telling her that there was more to live for than to die for. She smiled at her husband for the first time in three months, and all thoughts of suicide flew away into the sky with the butterfly. But there was one more thing that no one that day knew, not the lady in black, not her husband, not Hagen. The most amazing thing that only God knew that day was that in eight and a half months, Abigail Gilchrist would be giving her husband a son, a boy they would name Hagen. So Julie, what did you think about this piece? I think this is definitely a first draft, and I like the story because I believe Hagen has a story to tell. So my first question to Seth is, who is telling the story? And that wasn't clear to me because the narrator changed so many times. Sometimes the mother was in charge of the story. Sometimes the lady in black was in charge of the story. And then at the very end, I thought there were two, maybe three narrators. I thought the piece would work better if we saw everything through Hagen's eyes until the very end. And I think you can move around to different heads. You have to do it well, and you have to do it intentionally. And I didn't get the feeling that this was always done intentionally because those shifts were happening mid-paragraph. I think I saw one that actually happened in the middle of a sentence. So to me, if you're going to switch then you need to at least make a paragraph break. And I think you need to stay with that one person for a couple of sentences instead of just so much back and forth. So that gets a little exhausting as a reader. And then the other thing I noticed was that it was hard to tell what was important, even in a sentence. So a good example was right at the very beginning, the sentence starts off, his English wasn't as good as his German, and he loved watching the organist's fingers move over the keys. Those two clauses don't go together. It's either one or the other. And one of the things is the German. He's not supposed to be speaking in German, yet all of his inner dialogue is in English, which he apparently doesn't know real well. 
And I'll give you a really good example, the word cracker. I don't know any Catholic who calls a wafer a cracker, but if Hagen was German and he didn't know the right word in English and he's only four years old, I think that would be hysterical. <laughs> I totally agree. So the first time they said cracker, I was like, oh, that's so cute. But there were too many crackers. And some of the words the characters themselves use are not German. For example, the wife says, huh, and mm-hmm. that's not German at all. So I think the issue of German versus English needs to be very carefully reviewed throughout the piece. And there was too much explanation about yes. where they were, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. lines, all of that could have been shortened mm-hmm. to get him to the lady in black. At the same time, there were just so many beautiful things Hagen's stunningly blue eyes like little pieces of sky. I just love that. So I love the concept of the piece. I love the plot. You know, there's not much action, but I love that this woman is grieving and somehow attracts the attention of this little boy. And she sees his attention on her as God telling her that her life is worth living. But there were a few words that took me out of it. And I think those are important for an author to know. So porch. I'm not Catholic. I haven't been to many cathedrals, but I don't think they have a porch. No. I don't think that's what you call it. Personally, as far as the butterfly went, I didn't like it. It felt like a trick. I agree that going from the boy to the hand to the ring to spinning around and the butterfly should have been its own sentence. What I loved was when she took the veil off and put it in her pocketbook. So the first time we were reading this, I didn't even catch what a big moment that was. But then after you get through it, you're like, oh, that was the moment where she's like, okay, I'm done grieving. And now I'm going to move forward. And that's a momentous moment right there. A good example of showing, not telling. Yes, exactly. So all in all, there's really pretty prose in here. Which I love. I think overall, we both really like the piece and think it has really great potential. It needs a little bit of work, but I think it's well on its way to being something pretty cool. Hey, Seth, we can hear you now. What would you think of the review? Um, Maybe to explain a little something, this is an excerpt from a book. It's a flashback. And so the narrator is a man in the story telling backstories. So your possible confusion as to where the narration is coming from it's being told by the older Hagen. My comments will still stand because you as the author have to decide if the flashback is truly in Hagen's eyes or as a four-year-old or Hagen as an adult looking back at that time. And a good book to read if you're interested to see an author do that is a separate piece by John Knowles. And when he flashes back, he puts his youthful character exactly in the space the youthful character was. There's no adult in it. And then, of course, the second way would be to have him thinking, oh, Hagen, I used to think it was called a cracker back then. And uh, now I know 
it wasn't until several years later when I was six that I realized it was a wafer. So you would have a lot more comments like that in it. Do you see the difference between those two? I do. That's just for you to decide. And you may even want to write it both ways and see which one works better for the character and the story. Do you know how many times somebody has told me that, Julie, to rewrite something and try it a different way? And I thought that's so silly. That's not going to help me. And I do it and I end up loving it. And a lot of times I don't keep what I end up rewriting, but it still makes me see it in a different way. So for for everyone listening, not just Steph, um, that's a great piece of advice. When a scene isn't working, write it from a different perspective or make something different happen. And even if you trash it, it's still helpful. Yeah. I think overall it's beautifully written and it's a great story. Was it helpful to you at all? Oh, Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your piece yeah. with us. This was really great. Yeah. There we go. So keep writing fearlessly. Would you like to hear your writing on the First Draft podcast? You can find all the information on our Facebook page, First Draft Podcast. First Draft Podcast would like to thank WLXL 95.7 LPFN, Lexington, Kentucky, for their help in producing our podcast and to Keller Glass for the music used in this episode. The link to more music by Keller Glass is kellerglass.com. This podcast is produced by Julie Farkas. Thanks for listening.